Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's an honor, like I said, it's an honor, I've said it before, to come up here and preach the Word of God. Um, it is not easy, but believe it or not, I find it easier than the Sunday schools because I'm in the Sunday schools, I get questions that sometimes throw me off and then I have to think off the, off the top of my head. So um, <laughs> this is for the glory of God. We do this, as he said, as our pastor said, we do this and we don't get paid for it. This is for the glory of God. This is for your edification. My edification also, when I'm researching, when I'm studying, it is a blessing because I'm getting in-depth into the Word of God. And all I can say is praise be to God that we have His Word accessible to us because there were years and years where the people of God did not have the Word accessible to them. They had to have somebody read it to them, somebody explain it to them, and they were not able to check them to see if the things were so. So let's praise God for that. Let's begin. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. And we're going to read that as a congregation. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. It's going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. And the word of God states, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Praise be to God. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord, we come before you this Lord's day, this day that has been separated to worship you, to give you praise and thanks for the glorious mercies and blessings that you continue to give us. At this time, Lord, as we will be going through your word, through your scriptures, please open our mind, give us wisdom, give us discernment, Lord. May the truth come out and not just theories and opinions. May your words penetrate the souls and the hearts of all. For it is all for your glory, as the scriptures say, all for your glory to exalt your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've been going through the book of Romans. We are in chapter 8. We've been... Uh, going through this chapter uh, for a few sermons now, probably a good five or six. This really, when you get down to the text, this is really the halfway point. Because as you see, Paul states, what then shall we say to these things? The majority of commentators believe, as I agree, that this question is, these things are, is really everything that he's been talking about in this book which I can sum up very succinctly. He has been stating a sinner needs a right standing with God, which is not attainable by human exertion or merit. We do not attain this 
salvation, this right standing by our works, by us being good. Good. Because the standard of God is perfection. We cannot attain it. What is one of the things I hear all the time at work, especially? Hey, no human is perfect. We all make mistakes. So let's be prepared when we make mistakes that we own them, that we call them out. We know this. We know that we're not perfect. We know we make mistakes. God demands perfection. How are we to attain that? That immeasurable blessing that God gives us is the free gift of salvation, which the instrument that he uses, again, is not our works. It is faith. Faith that is given. Because once again, if it's faith that comes from me or from us, it's a work. It is human merit exertion coming out of us. It is a free gift that God gives to his children. This blessing of salvation has been earned by Jesus Christ for all kinds of sinners, all types of people, all the tribes, all the nations, from everywhere. There is no partiality when it comes to the type of human that you are. If you come from this country, if you come from that country, if you're part of this culture, if you're part of that culture, God chooses from everywhere. As it says, whether Jew or Gentile in the scriptures, that's usually the term that is used. And this blessing of salvation gives us a fruit of trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. It was Christ who earned salvation for his people by shedding his blood. He was on the cross. He died for our sins. He took our place. He was our substitute. He intercedes for us. He's our mediator. This is Christ Jesus, what he has done for us. Ultimately, his people are saved by this substitutionary death because he's in substitution for us in his first fruits resurrection. Why do we call it first fruits? Because he resurrected from the dead and we will attain that resurrection also in a glorified body. And he intercedes for us forever. These are the things that Paul has been talking about in the book of Romans so far. This is kind of just a succinct summary of it. And as I said, most commentators believe that these things that Paul is talking about, that's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about everything. But what can we for sure, for sure prove in the text? That these things is the stuff that he just spoke about a few verses ago. So I'm going to read those verses once again that our pastor preached on in two parts. Keep this in your mind as this is what Paul is going to be talking about in the next question that he asks. He states, who, I'm sorry, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, those that he loved before the beginning of the, of the world, he also predestined to become conformed 
to the image of his son. When we are conformed to the image of his son, it is both spiritual and it is physical. Physical will one day happen when our glorified bodies are given to us. But right now we are spiritually being conformed to love God and do what he says, because that's what Jesus did here on earth, on the cross, and he continues to do because he is perfect. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. There you go. The firstborn among many brothers which is also the first fruits of the resurrection. This is something that he's doing. He did for us, and he's the first one to do it, and then we will be attaining this. And those who he, whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is the work of Christ. He has predestined us, he has called us to salvation, to repentance, to the truth. He has justified us by dying on the cross, the righteous one. And now we have the sentence, the, the, the declaration that states we are now righteous. We are not guilty in the, in the sight of the Father. We have been given justification. We have been given salvation. We have been rescued. And we will be excuse me, we will be glorified. We will be glorified. That's why I titled this sermon, Is God for us? Who can be against us? Because that is the main question here, as we will be seen further down. If God is for us, who can be against us? Ultimately, who can be against us? No one can. When God does something, when God guarantees it, who can defeat God? He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. There's nothing that we, could, that we could do. There's nothing that the enemy could do. That is our God. But it begs the question in that, set, in that question itself, who is against us? Before we get to God is for us, which we know, but we will systematically look at it, who is against us? In the verses that we read, we see, out of the three verses, we see three different questions. It states, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn us? These, the enemy, this is what they want to do. We're going to get to who the enemy is or what the enemy is. But this is what the enemy does. There are, they're definitely against us. Why? Because God is for us. They want to bring charges against us. Saying, look at this person. Look at this Christian. What a hypocrite. This and this and that. Oh, you know, he's speeding or he's, he's going over here or he's doing this or he's doing that. All these charges that are brought up. But what happens? Those charges were already paid for. They were paid for by our Lord and our Savior. Who is to condemn us? We can't be condemned. We are justified. Stamp of approval. You are righteous. Not because of what anything we did, but because of what Jesus did. And now we have salvation. No one can condemn us anymore. But let's see. Who is the enemy? Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6. 
Here, John states, of course, this is after he wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, I think I agree with that. There, you know, different uh, scholars believe different things. One, that the Gospel of John was the last thing he wrote, or the Gospel of John was the first thing John wrote. I believe the Gospel of John was the first thing he wrote. This was in between, then the book of Revelation was last. So let's read this here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I'm going to stop that right there. How many people do not confess Jesus? They'll confess a fake Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, but they don't confess the Jesus of the Scriptures. Where did I leave off of? <laughs> yes, okay. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. See, even at that time, the spirit of the Antichrist was working. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. A few things we're seeing here. We're seeing that the enemy is a spirit. That the enemy is, a, is false prophesying or false prophets which you can add in their false teachers. We know that the enemy is the spirit of the Antichrist. What does Antichrist mean? Against Christ. And when we look at the word anti, it has really two definitions, against or in place of. These are the people that want to put themselves in place of Jesus Christ. So we got to remember that. It's not only those that are against Christ, but those that come out here and say, oh yeah, I've got a, I got a word from, from Jesus Christ to do this and this and that. And when you test the spirits, going by the word of God, it is not true. They have the spirit of anti-Christ. So the world is also mentioned in here. This world is the world that is against Christ. That is against the things of God. World can be used in many different forms, but here the world is the pagan world, the anti-Christian world, the world that wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ, with his scriptures, with his law. And that's what we see today, big time, right? We're seeing it really big time now. In the last 50 years, we've seen the degradation of this world. So this is what helps us determine the spirit of truth 
and the spirit of error. So mostly, though, as you see here, it speaks about spirit. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 2. We're still in who is against us. Who is this enemy? Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We see again spirits, deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, liars whose consciences are seared. Quick note. This last week we had elections. Our state voted in that it is okay, it is right, it is a right to put in the state's constitution that a woman and a man, the man who's participant in this, sometimes even forcing some of the women to do this, in murdering their child in the womb, that this is okay, that this is their right. It's not even just saying it's okay, it's saying this is their right. Like we have a right to live and to eat and to work and to do these things, that this is a right. Their consciences are seared. They don't even realize what they're doing. They're going against the law of God, who is to preserve life. This, this is the world we live in. We are here in these later times. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work. This is the enemy. It sounds horrible and grave. As we get later on into this, there is a lot of hope and guarantee from the Lord. But let's continue. What is or who is the enemy? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, when, in which you once walked. Listen here. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, the spirit, the prince of the power of the air. Cross-reference right here, the spirit of the Antichrist who says, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This spirit is anti-Christian, anti-Christ. And we're seeing it in this world with all the laws that are being put in place. You've got to ask yourself, when it comes to the laws of our nation, the laws of this world, it's either God, Christ, or something else. Those are the two categories. It's either Christ's law or somebody else's law. We uphold who? Who is our Lord? Who is our King? Christ is our King. Christ is our Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 12. This will be the final one for the enemy. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a lot there. I mean, if we, we could make multiple sermons out of this one. But let's focus on the schemes of the devil. We all know who the devil is. If you grew up in the church, if you've been uh, going to church for quite some time, you know who the devil is. You know who Satan is. He is against God. He is against Christ from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. <laughs> says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Of course, right? Our problem isn't with humans when it comes to just them physically. It's the spirit that's in them. It's the mentality. It's the ideology which comes from the spirits of disobedience, the spirit of the Antichrist, the devil, his sin nature. That's who we're fighting against. The rulers, the authorities, I mean, these are the people that are in control and that are in control not by God's standards. They are not upholding God's standards. We're seeing that today in this state, in this country, in this world. The cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. So what are we seeing here? The enemy, when it comes down to it, ultimately, it is a spirit. It is not something that you can just say, oh, sorry, close, close the door, uh, you know, put them in jail, um, flee from them in terms of just, just leaving. This is a spirit. How do you defeat the spirit? You defeat it with the word of God. You defeat it in the power of Jesus Christ. So that begs the question, is God for us? Look, I know many of us go through trials, go through sufferings, go through tribulations. I don't know if everybody's had actual spiritual warfare or even understands that they're having spiritual warfare. Um, everything is spirit. We got to remember that. I'm not, I'm not here specifying, oh, this demon is right after you. But everything is spiritual. The spiritual then gives out the fruit that comes out physically. So if your spirit, if from within, it is not right, that is what's going to be manifested. So ultimately, whatever situation that we're in, it is some type of spiritual warfare. Whether it's from us within, when we're dealing with our own sins, we need to repent. We don't want to give in. You know, to, to I, what I mean, we don't want to give in. We don't want to give in to repentance, to what God says. You know, we're so mad or we're so, we're so emotional or we're so, we have so much baggage that that's what we hold on to instead of what does the Bible say. And I know because I fall in that all the time, right? How do we defeat this? How do we get out of it? It is the word of God. And ultimately, why should we not even worry about it? 
ultimately worry about it. We're going to worry about it at the time. Why should we not ultimately worry about it? Is God for us? The Bible says it. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the scriptures of God? Look at all the, in all the verses that we read, all these different statements. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, it is God who justifies, and that's really the most important one. Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I saw this meme one time that stated, if you knew that Jesus Christ himself physically was in the other room praying for you out loud and you could hear him as you were going through something, how would you feel? You would feel great. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ is he's praying for me. He's interceding for me. That's happening. That's happening now. Do you believe it? I keep asking these questions. Do you believe this stuff? This is not a game. This is not just a fantasy. This is not mythology. Do you believe the scriptures? Let me tell you, there's nothing. There's something called the impossibility of the contrary. There's nothing but the scriptures. Everything else has been proven and, and ultimately falls. The scriptures, for the last 2,000 years, they've try, been trying to debunk it. They can't. Do you believe this? Is God for us? What does Psalm 118, 6-7 say? Here, the Lord was speaking specifically about Israel. Who's the true Israel? The church. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. There's only one way to triumph, to have victory. That is because the Lord is on your side. Verse 32, in terms of did not spare his own son, right? What does it say? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We know God did not spare his son. This is cited from Genesis 22.12. And if you look in your scriptures, it doesn't use the word spare. It uses the word withheld. But... Our brother Paul here, since he grew up as a Greek also, was citing this from the Septuagint. Very quickly, the Septuagint is the Greek translations of the Hebrew scriptures because the world back then read Greek. So this is how it's stated in the Septuagint. And now you're going to see the same words. And the angel of the Lord said, don't lay your hand upon the child and don't do anything to him because now I know that you fear God and you haven't spared your beloved son on account of me. 
this is what makes the scripture so beautiful. We see time and time again the same language, the same phrasing, the same words used. And it's supposed to do this so that we link it, so that we know, oh, this is talking about that, or this is in reference to that. I love that, actually, about the scriptures. It is, it is fascinating to me, and I think if when you really get down to it, you learn so much. And here, John, chapter 3, John is making, uh, uh, John is writing these things, right, of what Jesus says. Here, Jesus is alluding and using himself as, as the fulfillment of, of what happened back in the wilderness with the group with the, the people of Israel. This is what we call a type, typology. The snake that I'm going to read right now, the snake that was lifted up for the salvation of the poison that they that they had been bitten and they were poisoned, the salvation from it was to look and put your trust in looking at the snake because God had made it this way. Jesus Christ is telling himself that was prefiguring what my work is. Let's read here, John 3, 14 through 16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. You can read John 3.16 and say, okay, I understand it, but I wish I could have some type of visual. Go to the two verses before. That's the visual. The snake was lifted up when these people were poisoned. They had been bitten. They're looking up at this, and that trust that they're putting in what God had said is what saves them from death. That's the picture that we see here in John 3.16. That was a promise that God had given to them. Look at this snake that is lifted up, and your trust in that snake is what's going to save you. So God keeps His promises. The second part of verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm going to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 9. Here Paul speaks about this a little bit. And he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That is what has been promised and now is being fulfilled. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In that, that is cited from Psalm 112.9. Who is the poor in that citation? It is the poor of spirit. 
we were the poor in spirit. We're not poor anymore, but we were the poor in spirit. And now we've been given the righteousness and the wealth of God. He keeps his promises, and that is all gracious, graciously. And then Paul again in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Listen to this. If you know the scriptures, you know Abraham was promised something. And it is to be fulfilled in his offspring. So I'm going to read this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen to this. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. I'm going to stop right there. Do you recall the gospel being preached to Abraham? Can you cite that? Given to you right here by Paul. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That is from Genesis 12.3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The gospel has been preached since the, practically since the beginning. Genesis 3.15 and on, it has been preached. That is the covenant of grace, the grace that Jesus Christ fulfilled when he came. That is the gospel. We have the faith of Abraham. The true Israel is those of faith, which involves Jew and Gentile of all types, of all nations. And as you see how Paul had stated, justify the Gentiles by faith. He justifies us. God justifies us. As verse 33, the second part, says, it is God who justifies. So I will just quickly read as in the scriptures, Paul specifically tells us that God is the one who gives us these gifts. It is not from ourselves. That's why God justifies, not we justify ourselves. God justifies. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I don't understand how people can believe that they're saved by works and read all these scriptures and just say, oh, no, well, Paul didn't really mean that. Grace is unmerited favor. It is love. It is mercy. It's not something just given. It is something that is from within God. But what does he give you? He gives you faith. He gives you the faith. Not from you. If it was from you, it would be dead faith. It is from God. That's why God justifies. That's why God saves. 
And again, verse 34, as our King Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. Let's read verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We've touched so much on God, uh, on Jesus Christ dying for our sins, taking our place, the resurrection being raised, as we speak about every resurrection day. But he is at the right hand of God. What does that mean? That means he is king. King is a political position. He is above our president, he is above every chancellor, every other king, right? That's why he's king of kings, lord of lords. We are to abide by the king's decrees, the king's law. What's his kingdom? The universe. And as he intercedes for us, can you imagine that if the most important person in this world, humanly speaking, were to not only be your friend, but anytime you need something like this, he would help you out. You give him a call. I, I, you know what? I, I can't make rent this week. Oh, don't worry about it. Here, I'll Venmo you some money. Can you imagine that? The most important person, humanly speaking, in this world. But let me tell you something. The most important, the greatest in the whole universe is your friend, is your Lord, he's your Savior, he's your God, he's your King. Do you believe that? Or do you believe it's mythology? What does Psalm 110, 1-2 state? Sit at my right hand. That is the Lord God speaking. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as your footstool for your feet. He's talking to the Messiah. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Dominion. Who rules? Dominion. Who rules? Jesus Christ rules. Now, as I was stating earlier, as he intercedes for us, our pastor not too long ago spoke about the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us also. That is mentioned in Romans 8.27. I'm not going to touch on it too much. But God intercedes for us. God intercedes for us. That's the Holy Spirit, and that is Jesus Christ. And here, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John speaks more clearly about the intercession of Jesus Christ. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Oh, no. I'm screwed there. Wait. Oh, but if anyone does sin, oh, thank God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
That's his intercession for us. He defend. What's an advocate? An attorney? A defender? He defends us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Jesus Christ as priest intercedes for us, sacrificed himself for us, mediates for us. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So I'm going to stop right there. In the Old Testament, there was many priests. Why was there many priests? Because they died. Somebody had to take over after them. That's why. Just like this church, if by God's grace it continues after Pastor Gerardo uh, breathes his last breath and is in the presence of our Lord, there will be another. That is a position that it continues in terms of somebody else replacing. But here, as it states, look, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He is our priest forever and ever. There is no one greater than him. So the greatest is going to be our priest forever. And nobody's going to replace him because he doesn't die. He is God. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is why Christ died on the cross, was raised, he intercedes for us forever. And he only intercedes for his people. He does not intercede for those that are not his people. So, who is against us? The enemy is spiritual, ultimately. It is the devil. But can it be against us? No, why? Because God is for us. So what is our application for daily practice, right? We know these things now, or we either already knew them or we know them now for sure. How do we apply this to our lives? Let me quote this from William Hendrickson. We have nothing to fear. Victory is certainly on our side. Ultimately, and I understand this as, as humans, we worry, we, we get scared, we have fear, we, we, don't, we have uncertainty, we have uh, all ranges of emotions, right? But ultimately, we have nothing to fear. If God saved us, we are saved forever. No one can pluck us out of his hand not ourselves not someone else not the devil no one can take God is the most powerful nobody can take anything out of his hand unless he lets go let's read Isaiah 41.10 listen to these words again God is speaking to his people 
and we know who the true Israel is. Those of faith. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is God's promise right there. There's nothing to fear. You will fear something at that time, at that specific time, but ultimately there is nothing to fear. God is in control. God has decreed all things. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. Nothing can happen without His approval. Look at the book of Job. Everything that happened to Job, number one, was decreed and allowed by God. Number two, he, the pain and the suffering that he went through ultimately did what? Strengthened his faith in God. He saw the work of God firsthand. God then spoke to him out of the whirlwind. And after that, God blessed him. I bet you that Job's faith was sky high after that. He knows that he is saved. His Redeemer, right, as he states, he will see his Redeemer. And look at what it says in Revelation 12, 11. This is right after the woman in, in Revelation 12 gives birth to a son. And that son, when you look at it, is Jesus Christ. So it's speaking symbolically about Jesus Christ, his birth. And look what it states in Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him, and that's Satan, the ancient serpent, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. When it says they loved not their lives unto death, that is dying daily. What does that mean? You're killing your sin. You're killing the old man because the old man is sinful and wants nothing to do with God. And the spirit that has now been regenerated is the one that is serving Christ, is serving God. We have conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. What is our testimony? What is our confession? That we love Christ So our first point was we have nothing to fear. Victory is certainly on our side. What is the second point? God saves alone. We keep reiterating this because there are people out there that believe that they save themselves. There are people out there that believe that, yes, God saves them, but they're also saved by their works. as That's the Roman Catholic view. Time and time again we see in the scriptures, you are not saved by your works. Your works justify the faith that you have. In other words, they show you that you have true faith, but that faith, as Paul states, is given by God. So God saves alone. If God is for us, that's how we know, because God did it. God is doing it. God is with us. Not we are ourselves doing it. God is for us. 
See how it's worded. If we are for God and it's only dependent on us, we might even be able to be for God for a little bit. And then we wither away like those that left the faith. But God is for us. And the third point, as we've been talking about the enemy, the enemy has no true power. Now, what do I mean by this? Obviously, the enemy has some type of power, and it has a power to create chaos and create dissension and create emotions that come out of us that become sinful and so much that the enemy can do. But the enemy ultimately is going to lose. They lost on the cross because our sins have been paid and they will lose at the end of time when God declares victory and throws them into the lake of fire. Let's read Numbers chapter 14, verse 9. But as for you, only do not rebel against Yahweh and do not fear the people of that land. This is when they were going to go to war. For they are our bread. Their protection has been removed from them and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. We are in battle with the spiritual forces of this world. We should not fear. Who's with us in battle? Jesus Christ. Yahweh our God. He is with us. We have nothing to fear. We have the greatest, uh, the greatest warrior. We will win. Why will we win? Because God is on our side. God wins. There's nothing to fear. And to finish off, I'm going to read this from Zechariah chapter 3. I want you guys to, you, you may have read this before, or maybe this is your first time. Listen to these words and look at how the gospel is in there. And how God, being on our side, or on this person's side, how he defeats the enemy. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What are we seeing here? This was Joshua the high priest standing in front of the angel of the Lord. That is a Christophany. That is Jesus Christ. As you see later on, he states, I will, I will. That's God speaking. And there's the accuser next to him. 
the enemy accusing him and, and bringing up all these things, saying, look, you have, this guy has filthy garments. How is he supposed to stand in front of you? He's supposed to be perfect. What does the Lord say? First, he rebukes the enemy. You got no power here. And then he tells the high priest, yes, you have filthy garments. I'm going to give you pure garments. That is substitutionary. That is mediation. That is what God does for us. He takes our filthy rags, spiritually speaking, and he gives us his pure, perfect garments, his righteousness. And that puts us in the correct and right stance before our Father God. This is the work of the gospel. We have to know the bad news. The bad news is there's an enemy, and that enemy is on the way to destruction for all those who are with the enemy. We were once with the enemy, and we are no longer with the enemy. Why? Because God took our filthy garments and gave us his pure righteousness, his pure clothing. May the glory be to God forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, as we go through your scriptures, we see the work that you do. It is a work that is holy, that is merciful, that is loving, that we do not deserve. We don't deserve it because we have these filthy rags with us, these filthy garments that we're wearing that are keeping us, Lord, from your presence. But as you told Moses at the burning bush, remove your sandals for this land, this place is holy. You have removed our filthy rags, our evil, our weaknesses, our destructive ways. And you have given us your perfect son's righteousness, his love, his obedience that we could never attain if it wasn't for your love and your mercy towards us. Lord, who can be against us when you are for us? No one can be truly against us. They will wither. They will fail. We will be victorious, not because of our own doing, but because of you. And in that, we have full trust for your scriptures are perfect. Your scriptures are true. Continually, archaeological evidence is telling us the truth. But we also know that your words are transcended. There is no other standard and those that try to make their own fail and fall. We cling to you, Lord, because you hold us in your hand. No one can take us out. So may you be glorified and exalted as we sing to you once again and express our love to you. All these things, Lord, in the name of your perfect Son, our Lord, our Savior, our King, who reigns forever and ever. Amen.